those of you who have been uh, at either one of the, the first couple of, of classes so will be um, familiar with the, the format that we've been using. Um, for those who might be uh, new along this evening, uh, I'll begin by giving a little bit of an introductory talk for the first um, 20, 25 minutes or so, and then we have a period of guided meditation and then time for dialogue and, and questions after that. Uh, also, each of the classes has a particular theme, um, and ideally they stand on their own as well as weaving in together with what's already been said. Um, so uh, it might be that it, um, some of the things I say that it might leave a few people adrift and they're not quite uh, sure what I, I'm referring to or, or familiar with some of the concepts or or some of the language. So please uh, feel free to... to um, look anxious and lost and uh, ask any questions that you might have. So the, um, the, the, the theme for this evening, I believe, is uh, knowing versus thinking. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> 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 and um, so there's a, a couple of, of uh, elements to this that I thought I'd, I, I, I would outline um, to begin the, the evening with. Um, the first is that of uh, what is known as insight meditation, and uh, the second piece I'd like to talk about is uh, what we could call contemplation or investigation. So the, the first couple of of sessions, we've spent a fair bit of time uh, looking at the qualities of, of focus and uh, concentration, how to bring the mind to uh, a single point, to, uh, to train the mind to be able to attend to the present moment. Um, but that in itself is not a, a, a particularly liberating uh, Quality. It's, it can be very uh, peaceful and um, pleasant, but there's still uh, the whole element of understanding uh, is not really uh, being developed in that. So the, the Buddha made this kind of distinction between uh, developing calm or a pleasant abiding. Do, there's plenty of room up the front if you want to so come in. There's some. Well, you, you can you can sit down the side here. So the, um, the Buddha made a distinction between these two levels or layers of meditation practice. Um, the, the foundation being that of, of calm, of tranquility, uh, focus. But then uh, the, the other level, that which is truly you know, liberating for our hearts on the, on the deepest, in the deepest way, is that of... of uh, developing wisdom or insight, true understanding into the way things are, the way we are, what we are, and how we, we fit uh, into the, the universe. So um, sometimes these two different elements of meditation are presented as um, very distinct or separate. So you have that concentration practices are like this, and insight or wisdom practices are like that, and that uh, they can have quite specific techniques involved with with both of them, but um, my own training uh, and the teachers that I've had over the years, Ajahn Sumato, 
uh, who's an American monk and the head of our community in the West, and, and Ajahn Chah, who's my teacher in Thailand, um, both stress that it's, it's much more of it's like a natural spectrum, um, and that uh, rather than seeing them as two separate uh, distinct qualities, it's more like a, a fundamental, a single quality that has these sort of different phases or attributes. So just as like a, the, the blossom on, a, on an apple tree and the, the little kind of bud of an apple and the, and the fully ripe apple, they look different from each other. You know, the flower is not the same as the apple that you eat, but they, you can see they're also, the, the, in, a, in a way, they're the same apple, they're the same thing. So when we um, uh, talk about developing uh, insight, um, this is seeing that when the mind is, is calm and steady, when we uh, attend to the present moment, then we begin to um, be able to let go of the, the particular object that we've used as an anchor. Like last week we were talking about um, letting go of the breath and, and stepping back and and witnessing the, if you like, the space that the breath moves in, the, that's the quality of spaciousness. So with um, what we're doing with this, uh, developing the meditation in this way, is that as the, that steadiness becomes more and more firm and, and clear, then we can uh, say, uh, and that's firmly established, like the, the, the boat is, is, uh, is steady in the water, then as we, we let go of that, a particular object, then we're starting to employ our natural faculties of, of wisdom, our, our kind of intuitive qualities, or that in our heart which recognizes the patterns of, of nature. So that we're, in a way, what we're doing is letting go more and more deeply of the content of experience um, and learning to witness the, the process of it. So this is um, the, the way that we, we help this along so that, uh, say, we've been focusing on the breath as a particular object. Once the, the, the mind is clearly established and firmly set uh, in the present moment, we let go of, say, focusing on the, on the breath, looking at the, the, that particular pattern, and we open the heart to the whole flow of experience. So that that might be that we hear the sounds of the birds chirping, or we feel a, a sensation in our legs, or we have a sudden memory of our grandmother, or we're um, figuring out um, what we want to eat, and what we have in the refrigerator for a, a snack when we get back home tonight, <laughs> and uh, all the different stray uh, thoughts and, and uh, ideas, feelings that can wander through. So uh, we call this insight meditation, because uh, what we're doing is rather than then focusing upon the content and thinking, oh yeah, my grandmother, she was so nice, it's such a shame she passed away, blah, 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 blah. and writing a whole little eulogy for our grandma, or planning our snack when we get home, or whatever it might be, we are looking at instead at the whole process of experience. So, um, as I said, we let go of the content, rather than trying to figure out, what kind of bird is that? Just to say, that's the sound of a bird. A sound arises and passes away. A thought of my grandmother arises and passes away. A feeling in my leg uh, arises and passes away. So we look at that. We're looking at that quality of transiency, of change, um, and deliberately uh, turning our attention away from the content, even if we might be 
Uh, we might find a, a great interest in, in uh, what we're going to have a snack on later tonight. We, uh, at least for this period of time, say, well, right now I'm not really interested in the content. I'm not interested in the fact of my grandmother, but just this thought of my grandmother has arisen. It's come into being, and it does its thing, and then it fades away. So uh, if you imagine a sort of model of, kind of letting go of, of being involved in the stories that the mind tells, so we're stepping back and just watching the waves of, uh, of events, the patterns of experience coming and going and changing. And as we were, we were looking at last week, we begin to find that that quality of knowing, that quality of awareness, holds steady, but that is perfectly still and spacious. And we can begin to witness the, the flow of events and patterns of, of thought and feeling, the world inside, the world outside. It all happens within that same spacious arena. And that when the heart is firmly established in this quality of knowing, then um, we find that regardless of the content, whether it's something attractive or, or painful, whether it's interesting or boring, whether we've had this thought a thousand times already, we find that becomes immaterial. And that we're able to, uh, say, rest in this quality, like a spacious and knowing quality, and feeling the process of experience, and not only just in terms of, of change, but also seeing the beginning to see the fundamentally uh, selfless quality. Say we have a thought of, of, our, of our grandmother, or we have a, a memory of our own life, some event that uh, only we know about, that some unique experience that we have, a very personal memory of some kind. And then maybe we hear the sound of a bird or a, a car driving past. Or we can begin to notice that, well, something seems to be very much me and mine, that event. Only I know that happened. That seems so much me, so much per so personal, so much wo wedded to, woven into what I am. It seems very much, much like me. Whereas the sound of a car going past doesn't feel like me at all. It's definitely out there. But as we start to let go, in this way and train the heart to, to rest in this spacious uh, accepting knowing, then we begin to, to notice that, hey, isn't that interesting? This, this very personal memory and the sound of a car, they both arise and pass away. They both happen in the same space. One I call inside, one I call me, the other I call outside and I call it the world. Those, those values or those labels, they're just something tacked on the outside. And when we step back far enough, we say, well, isn't that amazing? This, this personal thought, this deep emotion, this random noise, they arise, they pass away. They're all patterns of nature arising and ceasing. They all do their own thing. They come into being. Uh, and we begin to intuit. We're awakening that intuitive wisdom of the heart that says, hey, these are all just patterns of nature. Some I call me, some I call the world, some I don't know what to call them. Don't know whether they're inside or outside or what they are. But, we, but something in our heart begins to know that. And when we be, begin to know that, particularly when we start to let go of taking things so personally, we remember some kind of wonderful, blissful experience or some great achievement, that moment when we were truly loved, then we get all kind of glowing and <laughs> gooey and uh, sweet. One of those delicious moments when we got it right. <laughs> and uh, it, was that, uh, it was a perfect moment. And, and then we remember some 
terrible shattering experience where we got it all wrong and it was the you know the breakup the failure and it's a, a, a moment of a terrible pain some incredibly mundane thing it's the sound of a car going past or or um, or something um, intrusive like uh, some of the classes we had last autumn we had these wonderful uh, beeping noises they were very good teachers <laughs> The uncontrollable beeping and men with screwdrivers charging around <laughs> trying to make the beeps behave themselves, which they refuse to do. So, you know, we begin to see that um, whether we call something uh, uh, inside or outside myself or the world, something in our heart awakens to the fact that, um, that calling it self, calling it other, calling it inside or outside, those are just conventional designations. And actually, it's really just patterns of nature coming into being, doing their thing, and fading away. Now, uh, also maybe I should have prefaced this evening, as I have done most of the others, with saying that uh, what I say is not sort of, I'm not putting it across as some kind of doctrinal, dogmatic truth that people are supposed to believe in, but Buddhism is very much a path of investigation, finding, for ourself, finding out for ourselves. So uh, when we have the guided meditation period, perhaps we'll be able to kind of explore and tap into this and see if we can uh, uh, discover the same kind of quality for ourselves. Because this isn't just like a, a neat little mind game where we're trying to just sort of rearrange the, the patterns of our, our thinking or our experience just for the, for the hell of it. Nothing else to do with a Thursday evening. <laughs> Nothing on the TV or the... Uh, uh, it's uh, it, this is a uh, the point of this is that that this re- this revisioning of experience can have a very radical way on the on a very very radical effect on the way we experience who and what we are because we find that uh, as as my uh, teacher um, Ajahn Sumedha would say was that as soon as I think about myself I feel depressed. <laughs> this is a great meditation master, sort of famous, sort of dazzling guru type. He says, as soon as I think about myself, I always feel depressed. And you might think, well, God, he's, boy, has he got a problem, you know. But it, it's interesting, as soon as we, we think about me, uh, as soon as we, we uh, look at life in terms of what I like, what I want, what I am, what I could be, what I should be, what I might have been, but I might still be, or then there's a kind of contraction. The the self contraction happens, and that uh, and when we we shift that and we stop thinking in terms of like uh, my life, my hopes, my fears, my problems, um, and that meanness and minus and inus, then. We and we start to think in terms of, of nature as a whole. Just just in even as I'm saying these words, and I must have said them a thousand times before. Maybe you can also feel that that nature has a kind of naturally spacious and, and calming quality to it. And when I say me, <laughs> there's a, there's a sort of stickiness and a a kind of density. At least that's what I, how I experience it. And so even though we spend a lot of our life trying to be free. You know, that uh, Mendocino County, this sort of epicenter of counterculture, 
the escapees from the Bay Area in the 60s and 70s, we all came up here, <laughs> many of us. And um, so freedom is a very, and just in the, the sort of the founding of America, freedom from the tyranny of the British, present company accepted, of course. <laughs> Even though Mary and I both have the same accent. Actually, we, we come from the same county, and we, we, we found out, uh, when were we talking, we probably rode our ponies in the same, the same horse shows when we were, <laughs> probably even raced each other against each other in gymkhanas when we were little scruffy uh, <laughs> characters in the southeast of England. Just found that out last week. So not, not all uh, oriental, teachers of oriental spirituality <laughs> in Mendocino are British. <laughs> so we long for freedom. Um, but what we begin to find and what this, this kind of meditation helps us to discover is that, that I can never be free because I'm always there. <laughs> that the, instead of the, uh, we try and f- to find a place or a position or a livelihood or a relationship where I am, I am a free person. But what we don't notice is that the I is actually the prison. And that, uh, that it's, so the person can never be free because the person is the prison. Uh, uh, so one of the ways I like to think about it is like if you think of the I as the bars of the jail. <laughs> but a lot of this practice is to do with learning to see the feeling of self as something that's transparent. We're not trying to make the ego into the big enemy. Say, if, only I didn't, if only I didn't have an ego, I'd be fine and trying to sort of white make the ego into a kind of evil monster that we want to get rid of. The ego is very useful. It's a, the self is a, is a very handy little social tool. <laughs> like uh, Ajahn Chah would say, if we were all just called person, it'd be really hard to get around and say, oh, person, person. <laughs> we wouldn't know who should respond if we were all just try to do away with, with identity on a social level. And when you get pulled over on the highway and the policeman says, you know, you know what's your name? Or you ask for your ID, you say, I- ID, I don't have one. <laughs> I don't have an identity. They say, okay, get out of the car. <laughs> Hands on the roof. You know. Troublemaker. So we, we use an identity. We employ that for, to get by in the world. But we begin to see with this kind of meditation we start to investigate that feeling of I-ness and me-ness and minus is actually transparent. It comes into being and it fades away. It's like any other shape in nature. So that uh, as we develop this kind of meditation and start to see more and more layers of, of what we think we are, the memories, the thoughts, the moods, the feelings, the ideas, we begin to see, oh, that's not really entirely who and what I am. I call it my thought my mood, my past. But what is that minus? What is it that knows that feeling of I and me and mine? And when we begin to just reflect on it and work with it in that way, what we will begin to see is that there's a quality of relief and ease that, ah, that's not really completely who and what I am. That's, that's uh, just passing patterns of experience. So one of the, the last things I want to say in this is um, that in uh, the in Buddhism, uh, the the Buddha was quite uh, determined 
to not create a, a, an idea of what we really are. So if I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my body, I'm not my ideas, I'm not my moods, I'm not my achievements, all my crimes, all my problems, then what am I? What is the self? Well, the Buddha kept uh, saying that this is the wrong question. <laughs> that rather than trying to define what we are, just, just learn to let go of what you're not. And then the, the reality of things will become apparent. As soon as we try to define what I am uh, in, in our essence, then uh, we, we put another fence around it. So it's kind of frustrating in many ways. And sometimes the people would beg the Buddha, look, if you, just, if you know, just tell us. <laughs> like, just, if you, can't you give us a straight answer? These shaveling <laughs> Buddhists, uh, you can't get a straight answer out of them. So the, the Buddha was absolutely resolute in saying no. The, mo- the, point, the important thing is to just train the heart to, to be that knowing. And then the reality of what is our, uh, the fundamental nature of what we are and what all things are will become apparent. But that, that reality can't be put into concepts or words. And just to say a little bit about contemplation, um, the, uh, this quality of knowing, you know, usually when we think about knowledge or ideas, we, we are an understanding. We very much arrange it in terms of thinking and uh, having a good conceptual map. When um, we start to meditate, we begin to notice that the thinking can go like a, you know, having three or four radios on simultaneously, all on different stations, just jabbering away. And so we begin to think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I could just stop thinking, just switch the whole lot off? Wouldn't that be peaceful? So we can, sometimes meditation can come across as a sort of anti-thinking program. And it's certainly it's true that we want to train the mind to calm down and to be focused so that we can reduce the thinking uh, somewhat or even make it quiet occasionally. But thought is an extraordinarily useful tool. And uh, I found for myself a, a, a couple of well-placed thoughts can save us weeks of grief. <laughs> oh, I'm not getting what I want. Therefore, I'm suffering. Right. <laughs> You mean while you've been grinding away at some agony for a month or two, right? So when we talk about contemplation, it's not just a matter, it's not a, 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 a trying to sort things out logically, but it's using the same kind of spaciousness, this quality of, of openness. So when the mind is focused and steady, it's a, like a, a, it's a spacious, open, embracing quality to that attention. We're not focused on, on one particular object like the breath. There's an openness. And when we talk about contemplation, um, it can either be in terms of, uh, say, a thought or a feeling that arises naturally, or it can be something that we pick up and investigate as a theme. Say, we notice that we're terrified of dying, or that um, we're, we're, we get very uh, excited by... Um, 
a particular kind of experience. Or that um, we find ourselves you know, feeling most real and most whole, uh, say, when we're helping someone else. Some, or any attribute of our life or, or some aspect of spiritual teachings. So what we, we do with contemplation then is having established that kind of open field of experience, rather like a sort of fertile field or, or a fertile space, then we can uh, either a thought that arises naturally uh, or just one that we drop in there. And so that we're allowing that intuitive wisdom of the heart then to be seeded by that thought. Like, why is it that when I get praised, it feels so good, and that when I get criticized, it's the worst thing in the world? What is that? Anything like anything of that nature, just to drop that in. So it's like you're dropping that question or that reflection into this pool and then watching what crystallizes from it. So this is very different from trying to figure things out logically. It's a much more spacious process. And so that when one contemplates in this way, then there's like an a, a emergence of that thought or that pattern. It takes shape for a, a moment. And then because our heart is, the, is of the same nature as the, the universe, if you like, so in the Buddhist language we'd say dharma, that our, the fundamental nature of our being is the dharma, the, that reality. So that then that reality of our own being is intrinsically related, connected to the, the, the nature of all things. So that we're tapping into that intrinsic attunement to life. And so that sometimes we can ask a question like that, what is this about? How does you know, this connect with that? And sometimes, immediately, there are, you know, something will rise up and say, well... <laughs> It's no surprise because of A, B, or C. And you go, oh, right, never thought of that. Other times it might be, don't know. That is a mystery. And I was talking about this earlier today with some people, and certain aspects of, of my life or my character or aspects of the teachings that I would look at, and it would just, just be like staring into the mist, like this sheer fog. Okay, we've got about two foot visibility here. <laughs> I know that it's foggy. <laughs> so, you, you, the, well, the difference between contemplation and, and ordinary conceptual thought then is that we find that rather than trying to fill up that mystery or that not knowing with an idea, with a belief, with some logic, we find the heart is much more at ease with leaving it open. Don't know. It's a mystery because we're coming at it from the level of the heart rather than from the, 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 the ego or the thinking mind. So the ego doesn't like the unknown. It wants to fill it up with the belief to make ourselves feel secure. The heart itself is, is much more at ease with that. And so the unknown we experience as, as mystery, as a, a feeling of wonderment that we experience. Uh, when the ego meets with the unknown, it experiences fear, anxiety, terror. So that, the, in a way, the fundamental distinction that in both of these elements with contemplation and with insight practice, 
the distinction between what we can call thinking and knowing is that the knowing that we uh, we uh, the way we use the word knowing in in Buddhist practice is it's not knowing about it's not having some facts it's the the quality of awareness itself so that just getting that much into our, our consciousnesses or understanding is, is the key piece. Because we usually think of, of knowing as being having the data, <laughs> having a, a, you know, a pattern, knowing how something works. But there's a whole other level of knowing, which is what we aim to establish the heart in, which is the pure awareness, that uh, an intuitive wisdom that is uh, like the alive uh, pattern recognizing um, quality of our being, that which is intrinsically attuned to the whole of living uh, universe. So um, we'll have a period of sitting meditation now, so if people would like to stretch your, your legs for a minute or so, just to ease your joints. up with the word space. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why it's like you're using words to get to the place beyond words. It's like using uh, language to to describe that which is beyond language. Right, you've got a lot more cues, reminders, telling you, everywhere, everywhere, everything's saying, remember, 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 remember. You're Deborah's husband. What's her, remind me of your name. Ricardo. Ricardo.
attention into the body first of all. Just noticing how we're holding ourselves, how the body feels. And then gently from that starting point, let's let the body stretch upwards, the spine straightening somewhat, helping to bring a quality of attention, alertness to the mind. And then with the spine as the central column, the axis of the body, so the rest of the body soften, relax around that. Befriending our own body, allowing it to be at ease, to settle. body be at ease with itself, noticing if there's any kind of tension in the the muscles of the face or the shoulders, stomach, wherever you find any kind of tension. Just gently let yourself relax there, let the muscles soften around the eyes and the mouth, letting the shoulders drop a little, letting the belly loosen, spread, fully at ease. perceive the body here within the space of our awareness. This faculty of knowing is, is operating all the time. But first of all, just focusing on the body and then narrowing that attention. Once the body is well settled and the posture is firm and steady, narrowing that attention 
to rest upon the breath. Not so that we change it or make it longer or deeper or not controlling it in any way, just feeling the body breathing. Studying this simple rhythm be the very center of our attention. As if uh, the mind were a great open field, a great space. Placing this little cluster, this pattern of, of sensations that the breath makes right here at the very center, like where the center of a mandala or a flower. It's feeling the body breathing. Following each inhalation from beginning to the end. Each, ex- each exhalation from the beginning to the end. We hear a sound. The mind jumps upon it and gets carried away. A stray memory, an idea, echoes of 
the day we just been through pop up the attention gets pulled this way and that so we work with the mind with a, a kindly and gentle attitude cooperating collaborating with the mind not pitched against it fighting it as we find the, the mind has drifted off and run away as soon as we notice that consciously gently just loosen your hold on whatever it is the mind has grabbed relax let it go come back to the center again let the sounds that we hear thoughts feelings of the body let them just be around the periphery let the breath this little cluster of feelings be there the very heart of our attention a focal point slowly training the attention to rest more and more steadily in the present moment thoughts of the past happen here and now ideas of the future happen here and now just let them come and go for the time being just let the attention rest with the breath
find that the mind is getting a little more steady, rests more easily in the present moment. There's still sounds that we hear and feelings that arise. Now let go of the feeling of the breath as as a central focal point. So we've been placing the attention on this cluster of feelings of the breath here in this, the center of this space of our, our awareness, the open field of the mind. So letting go of that as a particular focus, as if we were stepping, stepping back and it's letting the breath be one more object, one more pattern of experience taking shape in the, the field of the mind. There's the sound of my voice, the weight of your body on the ground, sounds of cars and birds, people, different thoughts and moods, feelings of tiredness or inspiration, memories, plans. Letting the heart rest in this quality of knowing, observing, feeling the, the flow of that, this whole pattern of experience. Letting go of the content letting go of the stories, is to witness it all, know it all as patterns of nature taking shape, arising, changing, fading. As being that spacious knowing that embraces it all, welcomes it all in, as if the heart were breathing every moment in, knowing it, letting it go, breathing it out. To help provide a little leverage on thoughts and perceptions and feelings. You can just use a little reflection like, it's changing, let it go. Is this really mine? Let it go. These are patterns of nature. Let them go. And as we develop this, then to see the effect on the heart that this kind of relinquishing, this releasing has on us.
if you find the mind easily gets lost and carried away and swept up in the current, just re-establish the attention on the breath for a, a moment or two. Come back to the body and see what the posture is doing. Let the body relax and straighten. Refocus the attention on the present. Then when it's re-established, let go. So we're guiding the mind, guiding our hearts towards just simply being this knowing quality. Taking in the pattern of each moment. grasping hold, not pushing away. As we learn to let go, then noticing how how does a thought, which we call inside, really differ from a sound, which is outside? A feeling of minus. Here-ness and there-ness. Noticing these are other simple patterns. Who does it belong to? What is it that owns it? And as we let go, as the heart releases, notice what that feeling is like. Not even clinging to a sense of I or me or mine. A simple, pure, open knowing. aware of everything, attuned to it, letting it all go.
This is not an easy practice to do. But, uh, even if just for like half a second or less, if just for a quarter of a second, actually the Buddha said even for a finger snap, if, if there was, just for that long there was a recognition, oh, look at that, inside, outside, it all just happens here. Oh, absolutely everything is changing. And nothing really has an owner. Oh. In one of his teachings he said, um, if someone made uh, offerings of incredible, incredibly valuable gifts to, uh, to support a spiritual community with a fully enlightened Buddha at the head, that would not be as, uh, as spiritually beneficial. You wouldn't, wouldn't be as much good karma involved in even that great gift as, uh, as if you uh, brought forth loving kindness in your heart for as long as it takes, the time it takes to milk a cow. About 20 minutes. <laughs> and that even more beneficial, even more uh, kind of expansive good karma is created by holding uh, in being the insight into change for a finger snap. So rather than, than buying out the whole of Safeways and offering them as a gift and thinking of the good karma that you're making, all you need is like one finger snap of, uh, of clarity of that, uh, that kind of moment of relief. So uh, this kind of practice is called vipassana, which is probably a word many people have seen or heard. And vipassana just means looking in, insight. V means inwards, and pasati is the verb to see. So, when we look inwards, then the, the looking inwards is the vipassana, but also that um, the, the change of heart, the inside itself, that realization of, of freedom, of, of inner spaciousness, that, ah, quality, that, that is the the insight, which is the, the, the most important piece. So sort of the methodology of the looking is one, but the change of heart is another of the meanings of the word. So I'd like to just open things up now for any uh, questions or dialogue or things that people want to, to bring up. But you can have a little leg stretch. I must not uh, overlook people's sore knees. So if you need to, to stand up and stretch for a moment, please do. Um, been sitting on the floor for so many years I, I have to keep remembering how agonizing it was for, <laughs> for the first uh, decade <laughs> so please uh, it's a completely open forum so anything that people want to bring up or any queries or doubts nothing no question is too stupid or or um, uh, uh, is sort of uh, out of order. So whatever will be helpful to ask about, please feel free. I have a question. Yeah. You, you can speak up so everyone can hear. Yes. Why do you ring the gong at the end and not at the beginning? <laughs> um, well. <laughs> <laughs> 
the beginning is kind of obvious by saying, okay, let's have the period of sitting meditation. So in a way, that's the, the beginning signal. Um, this is how it's done in my tradition. And then um, when uh, everyone's sitting quietly with their eyes closed, then I've never found a way of finishing things verbally other than by chanting that sort of meshes the, the mood of, of the quiet sitting with the more interactive mo- um, spirit. So, so sometimes if I haven't got a bell, I'll just chant something, do some of our traditional chanting. Um, and it just seems a very uh, lovely way of signaling. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> in some, in, uh, I think in the Zen tradition, they always ring the bell at the beginning of the, the sitting and, and at the end as well. <laughs> Great. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> yes. Um, did everyone hear the question? So, asking about the um, different usages of the words heart and mind. Um, well, the, the words have different connotations in English. And um, in the Buddhist language, Pali, you have several words, th- and three main ones, mano, chitta, and minyana. Generally speaking, the word mind... Um, has the connotation of uh, mental activity. So, um, in, in the common usage in English. And we think of, oh, my mind, or, you know, she's got an incredible mind. means like, you know, she's smart, or she's in, she knows a lot of facts. Um, and then the word heart has a naturally sort of warm and expansive quality to it. So that uh, I... Generally, I use them fairly interchangeably, but I, I find myself using heart more and more. Like, just the, if you use a word like mindfulness and heartfulness. So, I've, in just recent times, I've been experimenting with, like in Buddhist tradition, we talk a lot about mindfulness being a sort of crucial quality of, of paying attention to the present moment. And so that one of the, the key meditation teachings in our scriptures is called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So I've, I've been begun to toy with re-rendering that as the Four Foundations of Heartfulness. Because it's, um, in a way, that the, the brain is, is, a, is a useful character, but it does tend to co-opt <laughs> a lot. Right, but uh, the... Um, but the the word mind often gets associated with brain activity and um, and so that if the brain's got half a chance it'll kind of wade in and grab it sort of grab the show 
and so that oftentimes people can relate to mindfulness as you know as a very sort of head-centered um, uh, quality. You know, it gets a bit cramped. Whereas if you say heartfulness um, or the heart, then it's it's in a way bringing the the center of gravity a bit lower, and it's it's all very flexible. Um, often, uh, many many Buddhists text and, and the and the word mind in, in Buddhism is often uh, used implying sort of mind with a big M and so that sort of ordinary mind they might call discriminating mind and then the, the more expansive mind or what you might call the heart would be sort of mind with a big M or they use terms like original mind so like in the verses of the third Zen patriarch it says to seek mind big M with the discriminating mind is the greatest of all mistakes. So it's like the wave looking for the sea. It must be around here somewhere. <laughs> it's wetness is everywhere. So that the... Um, in, in a way, you have to sort of figure it out from the context. Um, in the Tibetan tradition, they tend to talk about mind um, uh, with a small m as meaning discriminative mind. And then they would use the term like mind essence, meaning heart or the, the kind of expansive quality. But generally, there's there, there, there's like a, a distinction between those two faculties: that that quality of transcendent knowing, which you call kind of big mind or heart, and then the discriminative, particular conceptual mind. And so, most Buddhist traditions will will make those dis- distinctions, and you have to sort of keep your ear to figure out exactly how the words are being used. I'm curious as to, were, were people able to follow that meditation? Yeah. And how many... I won't. No, you won't be. There'll be no. There's no exams or marks given. But <laughs> just curious how how many people experienced at least a finger snap of that that kind of quality. Well, that's like contemplation. Um, but I was saying that 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 is like um, when a theme arises on its own, and it might not even be verbal. It's just, uh, yeah. And you can, in a way, you're. Uh, we were just talking with this uh, woman in the front row, just in the in the little break about how you know words are so sort of clunky that we we, we need them to communicate. I mean. It might be very esoteric if I just came and sat here and just was <laughs> for six Thursday nights, you know, in, in Ukiah. Come and be with Ajahn Amaro. <laughs> Simply being. Oh, wow. But, you know, the talking is kind of handy. But the talking, the, ver- the words can only take us so far, so we use a w- might use a word to lead us into that space. So, like, just using a word like heart then the idea is then to, to use the word like scaffolding. 
Like, actually, we're just visiting the um, the new space where we're going to have the event on the second, hopefully. But uh, Ron Moe, who's the uh, creator of the space, is here, um, and uh, his uh, the scaffolding that's up in the space to do all the painting and all the all the kind of woodwork and so that you use words like scaffolding, you put them up to 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 work on the space. But then, if you leave the scaffolding there, then you know, it'd, be, it'd be a heck of a job having a yoga session with all the scaffolding. <laughs> and, <laughs> You're ruining my theme. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, you use the words like scaffolding. You know, you put them in place to, to get the job done, but then you know you you move them out of the way because the point is getting the job done, not having the scaffolding there. So you use a word. You might use a word like heart to kind of bring it that to counteract the sort of the busyness or the or the fragmented quality, or just to remind you of that fundamental space, spaciousness. And then you leave the word alone. The, the word helps to open up the space and then just leave it. And then the point is then to just allow the awareness of that, that space to, um, to, to percolate, to, to, to be known. Um, could people hear that? Uh, she was asking about, uh, say, I've been using the word intuition somewhat, and so Mary was asking, what do I actually mean by the word? Um, well, I, I alluded to it a little bit in the opening piece, um, that the, our, our minds are intrinsically intelligent. Even you. <laughs> Even me. The big M. Yeah, we have a, there's a natural um, quality, an a- aspect of, of our being, which is, which um, recognizes the patterns of the universe. Because our, if you think about it, I mean, we, we, the whole sort of Judeo-Christian inheritance is one of, sort of me being separate from the rest of the world and feeling alienated. But the kind of thing that this sort of meditation practice and these, these teachings point to is that you get more and more to the, the realization, well, how could I be separate? You know, every breath. I mean, we've been exchanging body parts ever since we came in this room this evening. You know, I've been breathing in bits of you and you've been breathing in bits of me. It gets a little bit kind of unsavory <laughs> but that's the fact right you know that and um, you know what makes the oxygen me i mean that is uh, the the you come in here and think, oh this is the the sun house and then well what was the air in the space of the sun house is now i call ajahn amaro this is me and then i breathe it out and then you breathe it in and then it's sarah and it's james and it's ricardo and it's mary and it goes into the carpet then we call it the carpet you know, we're, we're, the line between what is me and what is not me, just on a physical level, starts to blur. And then the, we begin to see, as we explore the mind in a similar way, that we, we begin to see the barriers between the mental and the physical are also kind of arbitrary in some respects. So that we begin to see that, well, how could my mind, or what I am, be somehow intrinsically and absolutely disconnected or different from everything else? 
How could I be the one thing in the entire universe that does not belong to nature? And that's kind of arrogant. Or, or really deluded. Or <laughs> really extreme, isn't it? I mean, it's a strange thought. On, a, on a, a psychological level, we can feel like that. Everybody else is part of na- the natural order except me. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the one wrong piece. You know, when you think it through, even when you say it, it's ridiculous, it's farcical, but emotionally we can feel that way, can't we? So with this, this practice, what we're doing is we're, we're opening up to the fact that our nature is intrinsically inseparable from the rest of nature. And the, the place where that's most completely connected is on what we call the level of the heart. So that my, the essence of my mind, my being, what I am, is, uh, or, or the nature of, of this, this being, how could that possibly be separate from the nature of, of all of the rest of us? It's one nature. It's one fundamental natural order that's in, it's in relationship with itself constantly. So, when we talk about intuition, what we are doing is we are like plugging into the 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 port. So, so the heart is like your your server, your te- the telephone exchange in old parlance, or your web your your um, your server <laughs> in the more kind of cybernetic age. So that's the, that's where your connection to the web <laughs> is based. So that you, you connect, so by just um, tapping into that, that fundamental quality of our own heart, then that, that, tapping into our own nature, then that nature is intrinsically connected to all nature. And that even though our brain might not be able to figure out what's working or what's, what's happening, uh, our heart is connected to that. And so we intuit, the heart knows what's the right thing to do at each moment. So that when rather than trying to just figure everything out by logic or doing things out of habit or what fits our opinions or what everyone expects um, or being guided by the other you know, dozens of different ways that our actions and views can be guided, when we open up to the, the, this kind of inner intelligence, this inner wisdom, intuitive wisdom, then we ask a question like, well, what's the right thing to do here? Then we're drawing upon that uh, intrinsic attunement, that connectedness, that unity uh, of our nature with the nature of all things. And so, even though we might not be able to figure it out, or we could have, we might be in a doubt about what to do, then what might arise is like, don't do anything. (laughs) Or like, move now. (laughs) Or, it's really not clear. There's no answer. And then what you find is that as that, because that's not coming from a place of, of reasoning or, 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 or of habit, but it's coming from a direct attunement to the here and now. It's rather like what, what guides a musician when you're playing music. It's like, you can't figure out what all the other instruments are doing. You can't quite tap into all the different shifts of mood of the, all the other players. You can't... Um, you know, do the calculations, but you can feel it. If you're in a sport, you know, any, any of us who've ever played sports or, or been in, uh, dancing near this kind of very, you know, physical, mobile, active 
um, qualities, something in you knows what to do. You're, you're, you're able to attune to the situation. And as soon as you start to think about it, <laughs> off it goes, right? Don't think, Luke. Use the force. Yeah. <laughs> and he makes his shot. I mean, that's obviously an old movie, and it's kind of, and of course he makes his shot because otherwise the movie would end badly. <laughs> but that's, that's what we're, in a way, is doing. It's like we're um, drawing upon that, that natural attunement, and that we are. Um, say you can call it your higher nature or your you know your divine inspiration or whatever. I mean, you can call it what you like, really. As Ajahn Sumedho once said, you can call it Montgomery if you like. <laughs> <laughs> no, Montague. Excuse me, it's Montague. <laughs> call it Montague if you like. Um, you can call it you know, the divine inspiration or. or or guidance by, by God or the goddess or by uh, the great whatever it is. Or you can just call it your intuitive wisdom. It's just that quality uh, that is able to guide and to, to steer. And so what you find is that the more that you... you like Also, another expression I use, which is a little bit new agey, but I'll go with it anyway... <laughs> Is uh, just consulting your consulting your own oracle? Because that's really what you're doing. Is like if you don't consult the oracle, you don't get you don't get the feedback, you know. But if you if you just take the trouble to to make that kind of inquiry, and it needs to be not in just a blur of mental activity and verbiage, but in a quiet moment and with a clear direction, like what is the right thing to do here? What, what, do, what do I feel about this? And you can do this in business meetings as well as you know, in the meditation hall. Like, what is going on here? What are they talking about? <laughs> Does this ring any bells? <laughs> How many of us have been there? And then um, that sense, and we can just call it, you know, call it what you like, but that sense of, of really knowing. And because it's not coming from habit, it's coming from a direct attunement, then we find we can trust it and, and can be guided by that with a great, much greater surety than if we've thought our way to a solution. Because if we, we think our way by, to a solution by weighing pros and cons, there's still a doubt. It's still like we're trying to, to think our way to the end of, a, of uncertainty. And it's just like a courtroom battle. You know, the other lawyer will always come up with an argument. You know, like, it's just like, you know, A and B sparring with each other. And as soon as you've piled up the evidence, say, okay, definitely, definitely, this is the right thing to do. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know. (laughs) And even when you really force the decision, then they go to appeal. (laughs) And around it goes again. But rather than trying to think our way to the end of a doubt, or trying to figure out what to do, or what's right, or what's going on, just by in a way, listening to your own heart, you know, just drawing upon that inner wisdom, then what, uh, numerous times I've, I've found when I take the trouble to do that, it's like, well, just don't bother, dummy. <laughs> Leave it alone. Oh, or like, there's no answer. Stop worrying. <laughs> 
Or another very well, an interesting one that sometimes arises is wrong question. Mm. <laughs> so um, it's a tremendously important quality. So in, in uh, I mean, there's various different words for it in Buddhist practice. So we call it uh, prajna or panya, wisdom, or lokutra panya, transcendent wisdom. These kind of words. And it's not like you need to have a whole kind of big setup. Like I say, you can do this in business meetings. It just takes like a, a moment to reflect, to look within. And, and as long as we're direct and clear in that moment, then what will arise, will, you will come from that, you know, will resonate that same kind of clarity. Does that make sense? I mean, I think as human beings, this is familiar to all of us in every culture relates to this in different ways. And you either have you know, the ancestors talking to you or the messages from above or, the, or uh, whatever. We, are, we articulate it in different ways. But the process is, is kind of identical. Does that mean that it's the same as Buddhist nature that, which is inherited in all beings? Isn't that the same? Or? Yeah. The Buddha, Buddha, Buddha means the one who is awake. So the Buddha who lived two and a half thousand years ago is like a, a, an embodiment of that quality. But uh, as my my teacher Ajahn Chah would, would say, you know, the, the Buddha. People often say the Buddha passed away two thousand years ago, two and a half thousand years ago. But the real Buddha is alive today because the Buddha is that quality of wakefulness, that quality of wisdom, which is. A, which is in your heart, and so that <clears throat> when we when we draw upon that Buddha wisdom, we you know we can consult the Buddha any time. <laughs> if we don't make the effort to consult, then we won't get the advice or, or the guidance. So that that Buddha nature is that faculty of w- uh, uh, awakenedness that we can employ. Of course, we can go through life without employing it, but just having it buried in layers of, of habit and compulsion and, and busyness and fear and laziness and you know, everything else. But if we, if we take the trouble to, to draw upon it, to recognize it and to open it up, then it can, it can be what guides our lives very directly. So it's not the same as you were mentioning intuitive. Yeah, that, I would say that Buddha wisdom is that same intuitive wisdom. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's like, or you can you can call it by different names. It's the, it's that quality of knowing. Um, so it's like knowing. It's rather like putting on a shoe, and it fits. You don't have to think the shoe fits. You know it fits before you articulate the word. So it's that knowing that uh, which is wordless essentially. It's that quality of Awareness itself. It doesn't have to. I mean, it applies to all beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're an animal, it's a little bit more densely buried under the the layers of instinct. And the the great benefit of a of a human life is that we have um, uh, the faculty to uh, not just be conscious or be alert, but they have this um, more reflective capacity. We don't just know, we know that we know. 
how does the uh, how does having a center with ten thousand voters relate to this need? <laughs> well, um, the uh, them like any Buddhist monastery, um, the sort of power source of the spiritual life is in a way this quality that lies at the heart of everybody who lives there and um, in all the different multifarious ways um, that a, a a spiritual community might function they're trying to support or draw upon or open up this, this quality and to encourage it within, within each person who lives there and to encourage it the awakening of that, the arousing and, and um, development of that in, in other beings. So um, it's, uh, you know, the City of 10,000 Buddhas has a huge range of, of activities. Um, and it's, it's a bit the biggest Buddhist monastery in the USA. Little did you know, on your own doorstep, it's Ne Plus Ultra. <laughs> they are uh, a really big show and they have many many dimensions to their way of life but in essence yeah so just in exactly the same way our monastery or, or any Buddhist monastery it's like a, aiming to be a center of wakefulness So we've come to the end of the evening again. So nine o'clock has raced uh, into our presence. Uh, so uh, I think um, Mary made enough of the announcement at the beginning. Um, also, one thing that we should mention um, that we haven't mentioned so far is that every Saturday evening at our monastery up on Tomkai Road. Um, there's a, a meditation and an instructional talk. And also, uh, we follow a lunar calendar. So on the four quarters of the moon, the, uh, we also have uh, those evenings, we have meditation, uh, communal meditation, chanting, and uh, an instructional talk. So people are completely welcome. The monastery is always open. Yeah. What time is the Saturday evening? They always begin at 7.30. Uh, so please uh, just just show up. You're more than welcome. 16201 Tomkai Road. So it's wonderful retaining wall. <laughs> also built by Ron Moe and his crew. Just by the big turnout. You're about four miles down Tomkai. Big turnout on the right, and there's a retaining wall and a, a sharp right-hand turn. You have to kind of hook in. Before then. Yeah. Just pretty much exactly four miles from the beginning of Tomkai Road. And when is the other one we do that you invited us to? Uh, the um, begins at seven thirty as well. Yeah, no, it's on the moon. You have to keep an eye on the moon, or look at our calendar. <laughs> half two half moons, the new moon and the full moon. So Sunday is the full moon of May, which is actually is also a big Buddhist festival, major Buddhist festival day, the birth, enlightenment, and passing away of the Buddha, all happened on the same day. And it's full moon of May, which is this Sunday. So we have a, we're having a, a memorial ceremony for our neighbor at midday, uh, and then in the evening we'll have the 
um, the gathering. There's also, a, because it's one of the festival days, we'll have a candle lit circumambulation. 7.30? Everything is 7.30. <laughs> All teachers are English and everything begins at 7.30. <laughs> okay, good night.